Welcome to the Fan Bros, the show where the bros are fans. Doodle. What's up, Internets? This is Chico Leo, and I am flying high above the Brooklyn night here with another Fan Bros special delivery. This is our special edition special delivery, Comic-Con New York special edition this weekend. Uh, we met a bunch of people from the uh, Fan Bros family out there. Shout out to Derpy Girl, Don Willie, Joe Illage, Will Rosado. Um... It was definitely uh, a smaller event than the big New York Comic Con at the Javits Center. It was sort of a felt like a throwback to the old Comic Cons of the 80s and 90s that were in hotel ballrooms. Um, this one wasn't so much a ballroom. There was a concrete floor that definitely got on your feet after hours and hours of walking and talking and, uh, you know, fan broing it up. Um, but it was great. Uh, Went to a couple of panels, um, hung out with some people, met some artists, bought some graphic novels. It was dope. So, um, yeah, if you can't make it to the regular Comic-Con, I think they're doing these special deliver- these special editions rather every couple of months. Um, and DJ Benjamin was there. I was there. Ty the Robot was there. And uh, I believe a good time was had by all. So, to the business at hand... Um, We're here to talk about Game of Thrones, The Dance with Dragons. So, remember, this is the Song of Fire and Ice. We got a tremendous amount of ice last week. Well, we got a tremendous amount of fire this week. Spoiler alert. Just when you think things couldn't get more outrageous on Game of Thrones, yes. Tonight we saw the death of Hisdar Zolorak. Daenerys Targaryen's fiance bought it. No, to, uh, he did actually buy it in tonight's episode. But the uh, the big, uh, really horrible uh, ninth episode event that's become a regular on Game of Thrones was Shireen Baratheon got burned alive at the behest of her father Stannis, who you know you were sitting there at home thinking Stannis had gotten dope, and he delivered a really great speech a few episodes about how much he loved his daughter. But um, when the chips are down, Stannis is willing to go deep into uh, deep into something, into his soul. Um, so Stannis's army is trapped halfway between Castle Black and Winterfell, and he needs to take Winterfell. Um, it's winter has started. They can't get back to Castle Black. And they now have had all their food and horses and supplies and siege engines have been destroyed by Ramsay Bolton and 20 good men who came through and did a lot of damage. It's a little up in the air. It opens up. They burn everything. And it opens up with Melisandre, the Red Lady, walking through the camp. And again, she's definitely the Fire Lady. She serves the Lord of Light. She's trying to convince, she's told Stannis that the only way out of their situation is to use the blood of, sacrifice the blood of Shireen, the princess who we all love. Um, 
So we see her walking through the camp, and then suddenly stuff starts burning, you know, and catching on fire. So it's not clear if she's somehow complicit because uh, Ramsey's men get through without, you know, any any guards noticing or anything. And Stannis the Unmerciful has all the guards, you know, tortured and then hung. Um but things are really bad, and they've gone from bad to worse, and now he believes that the only way out of this situation is to sacrifice his daughter, who has the blood of kings. It's a pretty outrageous scene. The girl is definitely brought out, and even the soldiers who are watching it can't handle it. Her mother is supportive at first, but then has second thoughts, but it's too late. And she is uh, burned alive, uh, pretty much the innocent, most innocent and nicest character that we've met on the show. I mean, that definitely wasn't the only thing that happened, but that was a pretty outrageous moment, even you know by Game of Thrones standards. I can't say by Episode Nine standards. If you go back and revisit the first four seasons. Um, the episodes, you know, really horrible stuff has happened in those episodes and characters have died. So the episode is named Dance with Dragons, which is uh, a book that she that uh, Shireen is reading about a war between two Targaryen heirs that happened a long time before the current action who fought over the realm, somewhat like people are fighting over the realm now, but they both had dragons and I imagine it didn't work out well for a lot of the population. The Sons of the Harpies, who are Westeros' version of the clan, basically, they're former slave masters who want to take over again and want to get rid of Daenerys and reinstate slavery in Marine. They make their move at the big uh, battle, uh, gladiatorial combat at the games in the in the pits, the battle pits, which Sir Jorah Mormont manages to win really dopely. And then as he's standing before Daenerys, having been wounded and vanquished a, a bunch of dope opponents, he suddenly throws a spear, and it looks like he's throwing the spear at Dario Nahiris, um, you know, uh, Daenerys' lover. But in fact, he throws it and takes out one of the Sons of the Harpy, and we see a huge amount of Sons of the Harpy making a move against Daenerys. The Unsullied get involved, uh, Missandei gets involved, Tyrion gets involved, everyone gets involved, and it looks like they get surrounded in the pit by uh, dozens and dozens of Sons, and ha- Sons of the Harpy, and it's down to like 10 of the Unsullied, and Dario Naharis, and Jorah Mormont, and Tyrion, and Missandei, who actually saves Tyrion's life really dopely. And then it looks like Daenerys psych- psychically calls Drogon. You get it, Drogo and Dragon. Calls Drogon to her side telepathically, and he comes, and it's another scene with a lot of fire. It opened the the show opened with fire. We had the scene with Shireen burning, and then Drogon uses his fire to definitely. It's like a tank showing up at a you know sword fight. Uh, he definitely roasts a lot of the sons of the harpy, and then uh, Daenerys gets on his back and flies away. So this is definitely the first time that we've seen people riding dragons. We know the Targaryens way back in the past road dragons but it's definitely an incredible moment and uh captured best by Tyrion's holy shit face when Drogon shows up and starts burning people 
So we've definitely, Drogon has been gone for a while. He's burned a lot of livestock. He burned a little kid, um, the shepherd's daughter. And then he burned, he came back when he was most needed. So da- uh, Daenerys is definitely, you know, back in her mother of dragons spot. And the sons of the harpy are certainly um, beaten back somewhat. I think that they thought that this was a sure thing and it and it didn't happen. Back in Dorne, I got to say the Sand Snakes is probably among the biggest disappointments this show has offered. They definitely showed up really, really dope and haven't done anything to deliver on that promise. I'm hoping either we're not going to see them anymore or they need to really, 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 really up their game. But basically, Bronn has been freed and Jamie, who's basically acting like Prince in Purple Rain, is a, a better uh, diplomat than, than his sister and uh, perhaps than his father. But arranges a deal that uh, that um, the his daughter, whose name I'm I'm blanking on right now, and the prince from Dorne, who she's supposed to marry, are going to go back to King's Landing, and the prince is going to get a spot on the small council, thus ensuring that Dorne definitely has a place at the table, and everything seems hunky dory there. I guess this whole plot was about just getting her back to the city and getting, you know, the Dornish interest in, in Kings, you know, back into King's Landing. Um, the Prince of Dorn uh, gets his, his wife who was leading, she's the aunt of the Sand Snakes, he basically gets her to swear solidarity uh, to him or she's going to die. And so she does, she doesn't seem happy about it. Oh yeah, also in that battle, uh, Daenerys is, as I mentioned in the opening, Daenerys's fiancé, who nobody cared about, uh, including Daenerys, does get killed by the Sons of the Harpy. I think he, in fact, is of their clan or class or whatever, but um, that that wasn't enough to save him. Let's see, the Free Folk, have uh, some of them have survived the horrible battle at Hardholm last week and are making their way through Castle Black. And um, Jon Snow has successfully saved a bunch of them. They are going to go on to the other side of the wall, get farmland, and be available to help, you know, the the Night's Watch fight the impending horde of zombies and white walkers and whites and things that are coming at them. And I guess, yeah, the only other thing that happened uh, in this, this was a jam-packed episode is Arya spies Sir Meryn Trent, who is on her list of people that she wants to kill because he's Cersei's right-hand man, but he also killed Sirio Forel, her dancing instructor, the guy who actually taught her the sword way back in the first season in, I believe, the ninth episode of the... No, maybe that wasn't. That was more like the seventh or the eighth. But um, so he's on her list. We never liked him. And I guess just to make him even more unlikable and just to see how far they could go on TV, the show has made him a pedophile who they spent five minutes of the show of him picking out which hooker he wants and none of them are young enough. And then they bring in like a 13-year-old girl and she's young enough. And I feel like the show even got you to think for a second that he was going to go for Arya. It looks like he might recognize her or think she's familiar 
But Arya definitely has a new target. And as a result, she was actually sent out to poison to hit um, the uh, crooked uh, fisherman insurance guy. And she didn't because she saw Sir Marin Trent. And as a result, another fisherman's life was ruined and the guy had to kill himself. So, um, you know, actions have consequences, which is definitely something that has affected all the characters. I mean, the main thing I feel like that, you know, if you're going to talk about this episode, it's definitely Stannis' burning of Shireen. Now, the um, George R.R. R. Martin does say this is loosely based on events that took place during the Hundred Years' War between France and Britain and within Britain. I do know that this this whole, there is a precedence for this in mythology. Before the Greeks were going to attack Troy in the Trojan War, the winds were not favorable or the seas were not favorable. And Agamemnon actually had to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia, um, in similar to the way Stannis, I don't think he burned her alive. Maybe he did, but she was, sac- maybe she was because she was sacrificed to the gods of the sea. And then the sea calmed and the Greeks were able to go and invade Troy. Um, things didn't work out for Agamemnon because although he survived Troy when he got home, his wife Clytemnestra conspired with her lover to kill Agamemnon, which they did successfully. And then Agamemnon's son killed Clytemnestra, who was either his mother or his stepmother. So that's that's like, you know, mythology. I'm not sure if this is, you know, based on an actual dude who you know sacrificed his daughter in the hundred years war maybe if it's a nod to the agamemnon story from you know the trojan war which is the you know the original epic in the iliad and then the aftermath and the odyssey so yeah that's uh that was game of thrones dance with dragons um also uh sunday night tonight we had penny dreadful glorious horrors so most of the action in Penny Dreadful took place Dorian Gray through a ball in his massive ballroom. In every other time we've been in his ballroom, it's basically just been Dorian Gray and one other person. So tonight it definitely was like a full-on eyes wide shut type party. Most of the characters on the show were there. Um, not a lot happened. Vanessa Ives confronted her nemesis it looks like dorian gray is fascinated with lily the bride of frankenstein victor frankenstein's not into that at all chandler uh turn does turn into a werewolf um and chains himself up before the process and because of that he can't be at the ball what's his face the the main dude who's the leader who um is uh you know van is it not van helsing but uh the guy who's leading the crew that's played by uh, the fourth James Bond, he uh, he's drugged by Hecate, uh, the witch, and is not acting like himself, and everybody knows it because he's reacting really poorly to his wife killing himself. So they know something's up with him. And uh, again, not a lot happened. Dorian Gray threw a ball. There was a lot of costumes, a lot of people dancing. Again, Penny Dreadful looks really good. But it is, it's more about a vibe, it's more about a feeling than just running down general plot stuff. Um, and we did get to see Chandler turn into the werewolf for the first time. And so, yeah, th- things have continued. I think the party, the ball was supposed to be so Dorian Gray could introduce his um, transgendered girlfriend, Angelica, to public society. But public society didn't seem to really care that much. 
So that was really a non-starter, and um, it was a lot of uh, a lot of plotting, a lot of um, you know people whispering and conversations at the ball. Um, but I, I would say this episode is really sort of setting up more of getting the pieces together for whatever the big final battle this season is going to be. As far as moving pieces around, um, moving back to Saturday night, um, Orphan Black, had, in the most re- recent episode, Ruthless in Purpose, Insidious in Mind, is another episode whose title doesn't really, it's like they just, you know, threw darts at, at a dictionary um, we meet another clone, Crystal. Props to Tatiana Maslany, who definitely gives her her totally her own spin, her own personality. Um, Felix finally got to do something for the first time in a long time, acting like a, like a Lothario to try and charm Crystal, the new clone. Um, Donnie got really dope in uh, trying to uh, mark off his territory with Allison, uh, with vis-a-vis Justin Chatwin, and he also had a really dope scene bonding with Helena. Often the best scenes are scenes in the show involving Helena. But um, I gotta be honest with you, I think that Orphan Black is full-on in like heroes mode. It's just bitten off more than it can chew, like plot-wise. There's way, way too much with the male, cl- the male clones and Dyad and Prometheans and all of the female clones and various characters and people are in Mexico and secret camps. And scene to scene, it's still very enjoyable. It's starting to get really thin and old, this whole like one clone has to play another clone. like That was really awesome in the first season. It's gotten old now. And so Cosima had to be Allison and give a speech as Allison, and Allison had to be Cosima, and yada yada yada. And I, they need to pull back on that. I feel like it's a, you know, it's because it's a gimmick, and it's they're overusing the gimmick. Um, again, I mean Tatiana Maslany is doing fantastic work, but I think that the show and the showrunners are just in waters that are way too deep and over their head. Scene to scene, it's really enjoyable. The acting is still great. The concept, while getting a little wobbly with some of these gimmicks, is still great. I'm not sure about them introducing another clone. But um, I gotta say, I just think on the wider in the wider scheme of things, it's really uh, gotten unwieldy. Um, there's been a lot more play with the book, with the copy of The Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, the movie that's been made three times, and actually the second version, the one made in the 70s, is on Netflix if you want to check that out. Um, it's just one of the great mad scientist books by H.G. Wells. They haven't, they haven't really cracked it yet with the movies. They've made three different versions. None of them have been great. I think there was a version with Charles Lawton in the 30s. There's the uh, infamous one with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando from the aughts, or maybe even it was in the 90s. But um, there's been a lot of play. The Island of Dr. Moreau book on Orphan Black get, uh, has, has a lot of code stuff in it relating to the original genome of, I think, the original male um, clone the original male caster, um, I believe. And so that's getting traded. It looks like Kozima's rebound girlfriend, Shay or Shane, who's played by um, Ksenia Solo, who viewers of Lost Girl might recognize. She's um, Kenzie, 
the main character on Lost Girl Sidekick, and uh, she's also on Turn this season. She seems to be like a big TV up-and-comer. She's another Canadian Vancouver actress, um, like Tatiana Maslany and a lot of the cast of um, Orphan Black, because that show is shot in Vancouver. Uh, the other thing is, uh, for your board game fanatics out there, the game Agricola got a lot of play, literally and figuratively, on this episode. Um, I've, I've played it a couple of times on one occasion uh, several years ago. Highly recommend it if you're a board game fan. In fact, um, the show's kind of made me you know, think I should go out and get it. Um, if you're into those kinds of games, it's a good one. But, um, yeah, I'm going to continue watching Orphan Black this season, but I, I don't really know. Um, I, I don't hear a lot of people saying this, but I do feel like the show's going off the rails. And the concept is still, with the clones, is still fantastic. But a lot of the, the world building and, and plot stuff is just out of control. So also Saturday night, we had the second season premiere of Power, and the episode is called Consequences, and it picks up right where season one ended. Um, I gotta say, it, they they managed to, to play it off really well that Ghost never found out that Angela was a fed. Um, that was the big reveal at the end of the first season, is that Tommy finds that out, Ghost partner. Um, Tommy is livid. He goes to ground. Um, also in the season finale last year, Holly is accident. Tommy's girlfriend is accidentally shot by Pink Sneakers, the hit woman, um, who uh, is shooting at Ghost, who happens to be talking to Holly. So basically, Ghost learns Angela is a Fed, just as Angela is taken off the task force that's looking for Ghost. And of course, Angela doesn't know that she's actually looking for Ghost. Um, although she knows now that the um, that the drug dealer that she's looking for is named Ghost, but she knows Ghost as Jamie. Um, Tommy thinks Ghost has betrayed him, but he doesn't know that Holly has been shot. And so he's hiding out at his mom's house doing coke with her and using a lot of foul language uh, with her while she uses a lot of foul language. Um, he basically, he's almost going to kill Ghost, but is convinced when, when he tells Ghost, he's convinced that Ghost didn't know. So now Ghost knows. What Ghost doesn't know, uh, he knows that Kanan is out of jail, but he doesn't know that Kanan is behind it. Um, that was one of the weakest, if like the only real weak thing from the first season is that it was pretty clear that Kanan was behind all of this and it was kind of crazy that Ghost and Tommy were so blind to it. Um, that Kanan is really out to take apart Ghost and Tommy's whole organization and has been pretty successful from prison in making moves. Um, in addition to that, because Ghost has so much on his plate, He's managed to take his eye off the ball, and he's lost his club truth to Simon Stern, uh, who's played by Victor Garber that you might recognize from Alias, and of course plays the other half of Firestorm, the professor who's not Ronnie Raymond on uh, the wonderful Flash show. But Simon Stern looks like he's going to take the club out from under Ghost. Ghost has just doubled the amount of cocaine that he's going to be dealing, making him the biggest uh, drug dealer in all of New York. But now his whole operation is in a shambles. He doesn't have the club to wash the money through, and he doesn't have the people to deal the drugs. And he goes back to Angela. 
And I, you know, I believe for the purposes of TV that he's not going to kill her because then, you know, we wouldn't have a show. You know, she tells him she loves him and all that. And she's just had a really bad day because she's got taken off her case that she's been working on for a year. And Ghost is playing it cool, as he always does. And we'll see what happens with that. Um, I I imagine he's going to confront her. Um, But he can't confront her without admitting that he's a drug dealer. So... We'll see what's going to happen with that. Um, Tommy does find out that Holly's been shot, and there's definitely a creepy scene of him going and lying with her while she's unconscious in the hospital bed. Tasha, Ghost's wife, is trying to have it both ways. She's trying to use this opportunity to bring him closer and make him you know, depend on her, but she's also got her own thing going on. She's got her own uh, line of credit. She's got her own debit card. She's got her own bank account. And she's basically trying to decide, you know, should I stay or should I go? Um, Kanan's out of jail and fully uh, establishing his, uh, you know, making up for lost time. Um, He's also pissed because the hit went wrong. He was hoping to hit um, Ghost and then basically play Tommy and get Tommy under his, you know, under his wing and then clip Tommy and take over. But that's not going to happen now. He does have his son. Uh, Sean drives for uh, Ghost and Tasha. And so he's got the ultimate inside man. But uh, we'll see where the son's uh, loyalties are. I don't see him. Now. I mean, he's, his relationship with his father is, you know, what it is. But I don't see him knowingly betraying Ghost and Tasha. But we'll see where the season goes. Um, if you haven't checked out uh, Power, it's on Stars. Again, I, I think I mentioned this last week, but the dude who was in charge of HBO during its highest golden age, best, you know, uh, whatever in the early 2000s, has been at Stars and has been putting together some really great shows uh, Black Sails, Spartacus, Outland, uh, Outlander, and uh, Power. And they're all uh, real good takes on genre stuff. I give Power a lot of props. It's got a a really great diverse cast. The cast is really good. It's not just that it's a diverse cast, but everyone's really good. It looks really good. It's slick. It's got a. It's got you know. It's got a budget. It's got a hip hop soundtrack. It definitely feels like it's shot in New York. Um, unlike shows that are shot in Canada and claim to be in New York, like, you know, shows that rhyme with rain or pain, um, or cocaine, um, and so on the FX network. And so, yeah, I mean, it just, um, if you're not watching it, I mean, it's not The Wire, but it's a real good crime show, um, that's going on right now. I'm in the middle of watching Sense8 on, uh, Netflix, And to paraphrase Ty the Robot, uh, the Wachowskis have great concepts, but their execution is often flawed. Uh, That continues with this, but I think their execution in this is the least flawed that it's been in anything. Um, I definitely am down with everyone with all the concepts in the first Matrix, but I actually do think their execution is a little flawed. I don't really care about any of the characters. I half care about Morpheus and Neo and it's it's hard to differ. I don't know. I I feel like that there's there are issues with the Matrix, but the concepts are obviously incredible. Um, there's a lot of style that definitely comes off. I just question some of the substance 
in the Matrix, but most of their other stuff has been varying degrees of disasters with varying degrees of great concepts behind them. And Sense8 is a TV show where most of the episodes are directed by either them or Tom Twyker. Tom Twyker is a German director who most people will remember for Run, Lola, Run. He's directed a bunch of other movies since then, including he co-directed Cloud Atlas uh, with uh, the Wachowskis. And uh, Wachowskis, and this this has a, a a similar feel to Cloud Atlas. It also feels a little like Babel or Syriana, and it's about eight twenty something characters who are all over the world who have an amazing psychic connection, and I think that they're that the Wachowskis are really suited for TV. It un the the story really unrolls slowly, but I think it's a really classy unrolling where you get to spend time with the characters, and because the episodes are really well acted and really well directed, um, and it's it's a really great array. There's a, a Korean kickboxing a kickboxer businesswoman. There's a bus driver in Nairobi. There's a cop in Chicago. There's an actor in Mexico. There's um, an activist in San Francisco. Um, there's a safe cracker in Germany. You know, there's all these characters and they, they all have these connections. And there's a mysterious uh, figure uh, who's hunted by the government and labeled a terrorist by the government, played by the Indian actor who played Saeed on Lost. Um and so it, it it definitely jumps all over the world. the The way that the the show uh, portrays their connection is really dope. Um, the show has nothing to do with the uh, Marco Polo show that Netflix did, but like that, I would encourage you to sit through the first two episodes, which really are sort of setting things up. And I think that things start picking up in the third, but they continue to pick up with each episode so that you know things really start picking up with the third and then they get a little crazier with the fourth and a little crazier with the fifth i'm in the, like the seventh or eighth episode i was trying to watch it all before the special delivery but between the comic-con event yesterday and all the tv tonight um you know i just wasn't able to knock it all out this weekend i actually really highly recommend it i think it's the best thing the wachowskis have done you know, maybe it's not better than The Matrix, uh, but it's better than anything else. And it really, really is able to, they realize their themes and a lot of their concepts better in this than in anything. And there's a lot of sort of themes about identity and um, personality and, uh, you know, stuff that you've seen in and transformation, definitely, um, that you've seen in a lot of their other um, in their other works. Um, my only complaint, honestly, I, I like the pacing. Some people might might dislike the pacing. My only complaint, I'd have liked to have seen it in um, subtitled in the sense that, like, when we go to Korea, they shouldn't all be speaking English. And when we go to Germany, they shouldn't all be speaking English. But... Um, that's a pretty minor complaint. I think it would turn a lot of viewers off, and I'm willing to accept that. But it's definitely, I would say, like, you know, basically the X-Men meets Babel or Syriana or Cloud Atlas or something like that. And um, it does have a real cool take on this psychic connection where these people can inhabit each other's bodies, and they start having um, 
conversations but so far they're never in the same place at the same time so a lot of their stuff is all astral or telepathic and it's very interesting how how it all plays out and the characters are really strong and everyone has their own story so um yeah sense eight highly recommended highly recommend that you uh you know give it a few episodes i think it also uh lends itself very well to binge watching i think uh it has its own rhythm and you're gonna you know i i wouldn't you know or 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 try and watch it you know watch it in in a week or two in the sense rather than watching like one episode a week um but yeah sense eight uh newest uh show from netflix uh, the Wachowskis and Tom Twiker. The Wachowskis, if they're not directing the episode, uh, oh, and also J. Michael Straczynski, who was a Spider-Man writer for a long time and also brought you Babylon Five, is also a co-creator in this. But the uh, the episodes, they, it feels really cinematic. When they're shooting in Nairobi, they're shooting in Nairobi. When they're shooting in Seoul, they're in Seoul on the streets. It's not like Lost, where they use parts of Hawaii to double as. Um, you know, soul, or it's not like, you know, I, I don't know, whatever, where they're doubling, you know, someplace in Arizona for Nairobi. It's definitely, um, you know, an international production, you know, on the scale of something like Game of Thrones, not on the scale of Game of Thrones, but just the different locations that you get in one episode. So, um, that's highly recommended. Let us know what you think, or at least by me, it's highly recommended. I know Tatiana was going to check it out uh, this weekend. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll talk about it maybe on Wednesday. But visit fanbros.com, subscribe on iTunes, check us out on SoundCloud, and shout us out on Twitter at Fanbros Show. All right, peace. Fan Bros. Hey, hey.